This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC Sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. For Inside Carolina, I'm Taylor Vipolis, and you're listening to this podcast, which is a part of the Inside Carolina Podcast Network. So first off, thank you for being here. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Inside Carolina wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube so you never miss any of the content our team at IC puts out. It hardly takes any time, and it helps us out a great deal. Also, speaking of support... We want to support the people that support us. So that's why I've got to remind everybody about Johnny T-Shirt. Johnny T-Shirt is the go-to shop for all things Carolina apparel. They've got your football jerseys, the T-shirts, the basketball jerseys, the hats. And as the weather keeps getting cooler, they've got all the Carolina hoodies and jackets you could ever want. Also, Christmas is quickly approaching. So stop procrastinating that holiday shopping. Get it done early for the Tar Heel fan in your life or for yourself by going to Johnny T-Shirt. They always have great deals. You can visit them right on Franklin Street or go to johnnytshirt.com. And don't forget, Inside Carolina premium subscribers save 10% off their orders. All right, let's get to it. As always, I'm joined by my fellow Carolina football letterman, Mike Ingersoll and EJ Wilson. Guys, Carolina wins big against Western Carolina on senior day by a score of 49 to 9. Mike, what were your general takeaways from that game? Well, number one, if this podcast got in the way of our off-air discussion of shower gojo fights, um, but number two, that <laughs> – <laughs> He just sit there laughing. Thank God he's on mute. Um, <laughs> uh, but re- really, I mean, in, ter- in terms of the game, I guess the thing that really matters, although that's arguable at this point, um, we saw we saw a great opportunity for our young guys to get some reps and for our our our, our, our depth chart to actually gain some experience uh, in the second half. It was you know a, a a fairly the game was pretty much over you know, probably midway through the second quarter, which I think was to be expected, although we've talked about situations in the past where, you know, against an FCS 1AA team, that hasn't always been the case for us. Um, so it was nice to see that game get put away early and then see guys in the second half like Jacoby Criswell, um, you know, get an opportunity. Unfortunately, you know, we saw a guy like Ed Monolis got hurt, um, lost him for the year. That, I think that's going to be impactful moving forward. Um, uh, Steven Gosnell, freshman receiver, he also got, got hurt. But, you know, I think Monolis is – uh, impact is going to be, I guess, the impact of his loss is going to be felt uh, pretty substantially, both, you know, the, the game against Miami and in whatever bowl game we end up going to. So I think that, you know, the key takeaways were that we played relatively cleanly, although it wasn't perfect from an offensive line per, uh, protection standpoint. I thought there was still a little too much pressure. Sam got hit a few too many times. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we still haven't cleaned that up completely, but for the most part, he had a relatively relatively clean pocket. Um, our running game was what I would expect it to be against a you know, team like Western Carolina. No offense to those, uh, those in Cullowhee. I mean, they run the same hours we do. They run the same drills we do. They sweat like we do. But, you know, sometimes there's just a talent deficiency, and I think there was – or talent discrepancy, I should say. 
Um, you know, and that's what we saw, but, you know, we took care of business. It was an opportunity like we talked about last week for the team to, um, uh, late in the season, clean up some fundamentals and take care of some things, kind of get back to basics in a game setting, as opposed to practice, like on a bye week So I thought they took advantage of that and they put some good things on film. Um, you know, hopefully there will be some, um, uh, some confidence, uh, some confidence building that took place during this game that will carry into the Miami game coming up. EJ, what about you? What were your biggest takeaways? I'll say my biggest takeaway was probably the, the impact and the presence of some of our younger players. I mean, pretty much from the beginning of the second half on, we saw some of the reserves in there. And um, two people really stood out to me. Uh, one was Dez Evans, and the other one was, was, was Kimon Rucker, who we'll kind of get into later on. But it really excites me. This is the first game I think I've come from where I'm come out of where I'm really excited about uh, the future of our defense. Um, the, my second takeaway is a a more, I guess, pessimistic view because it looks like as our defense is on the rise, our offense may be losing some key players, uh, either through the draft, either through the loss of um, the NFL. EJ, we really. don't do pessimism on this podcast. <laughs> Anybody who's listened to us all season knows that we are just a bastion of positivity. Just all, just all sunshine and flowers, man. <laughs> yeah, sunshine and flowers and fart and rain. <laughs> but exactly, mean, it's kind of something that Mike um, alluded to earlier on the season about our window with having Sam and having Daz and having some of those talented guys on offense. And it really reminds me of the situation um, back at Carolina Dorm, I guess I'll say my last three years. I mean, you talk about when we had Hakeem Nix, Brooks Fosters, Brandon Tate, a lot of those talented guys who went on to have great careers in the NFL while the defense was lackluster at best. Then you go into my senior year, not saying that we had a bad offense. Uh, this is definitely not an apples to oranges comparison, but we did not have that offense. It, it was simply because of the loss of some of those explosive players. I mean, when you lose players at that level, as we will next year, then the offense is going to take a downturn. So one thing I'm worried about is that with we have a defense on the rise and the offense is great right now with players who probably – the offense will probably look completely different next year. And I know two years from now, it's not going to look the same. But I, I am happy – with what I saw from those young guys. My uh, third takeaway, we still can't stop the run. I mean, if we run as up as, as big as we're on these guys and they could actually run the ball and not have to pass so much, I'm really worried about what would have happened. I mean, we still gave up a few big plays, and I think the only difference in this game was really the, the talent discrepancy. So if this was another team, um, an ACC team or another uh, higher caliber opponent, I think that we may have struggled and that score might have been a little bit closer. So, I mean, it, it, I mean, and, and I like to take these chances when we're playing against a, a lower-level opponent to kind of be more critical of our guys because it's not like we're watching them play Notre Dame as they did last week or another ACC opponent. So I, I still think that we have some some things that we need to improve on. But overall, my the biggest uh, – the biggest satisfaction I got was seeing some of those young guys go out there and, and, and have fun and actually play a solid game. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the points that you guys both made were my biggest takeaways that this was basically what a game against an FCS level team should look like where you can control how the game's played and you get your younger guys um, some much needed playing time. I think offensively you're a little more discouraged with what the younger guys were able to do um, than defensively where, Carolina only scored six points after halftime. Um, but I, I think you did see enough encouraging things from young guys like Cayman Rucker, like Des Evans, like Eugene Asante, um, and then offensively guys like DJ Jones and Elijah Green to feel somewhat confident for this team moving forward. Now, the guys they're replacing are really talented guys in Michael Carter and Chaz Surratt, so that's going to be um, a challenge. But for, for 
what the objectives are for a game like F- like a, a Western Carolina. This is why you schedule a Western Carolina where the offense can basically name their score in the first half, get a chance to play some of those younger guys. Because if, if Carolina wanted to and they kept Sam Howell in there, they probably would have broke all the scoring records ever in that game. Because the only, the only thing – with the exception being the Notre Dame game, the only thing that really stops this Carolina offense is the drops, is the penalties, is the fumbles, like you saw with Toe Groves. And outside of that Toe Groves fumble, I think Carolina scored a touchdown on every um, possession. But, Mike, the first question that I have for you outside of the takeaways is a player that I mentioned, Michael Carter. He passed um, Ethan Horton and Natrone Means on UNC's all-time rushing list for sixth place. And He's only 76 yards away now from passing Don McCauley and being a top five all-time rusher at a school as big as Carolina. How do you think Michael Carter's legacy will be remembered by Carolina fans? Uh, I think the announcers during the game, um, so Durham and and, and his co-announcers, I think they did a a really good job of pointing out and discussing – uh, Michael's leadership, right? So what you hear about Michael Carter all the time is you see, I mean, you see what he does on the field, right? He runs the ball for, you know, a million yards a game and he's hard to bring down and he's sure handed and he's decent in pass protection. Like he's a complete back. Um, I think people will remember that, but I think mostly what people will remember is that, you know, he was, and what they, what they should remember is that he is a guy who's clearly revered by his teammates. He's a guy who's clearly respected in the locker room. The coaching staff respected him. I think that's the kind of thing that leaves a legacy maybe more so than your production. His production gives him the pedestal, right? His production gives him the platform. But what he's done with that platform has been, unlike us on this podcast, very positive, very encouraging, right? He's a guy that you want to interview in the postgame. Um, he's very insightful. Um, he's, a, he's the type of guy that you're proud represents your program. And he's also the kind of guy you're going to see come back, right? If he's going to have an NFL career. I don't know if it's going to be for three years. I don't know if it's going to be for two years. I don't know if it's going to be for 12 years. But he's going to have an NFL career. But he's one of those guys who's going to come back, and you're going to recognize him. And the reason you're going to recognize him is because whenever you see the media coverage of him after the game, um, whenever you see people, whenever you hear announcers talking about him during the game, you know, it's – uh, he's, he's, it's just how magnanimous he is. He's always smiling. He's always happy. He's always cheerful. He's always positive, right? That, that you're going to remember his face. You're going to remember his smile. You're going to remember the nice, you know, the, 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 the leadership qualities that he exudes, right? And that's, that's going to come back. It's the geo factor, right? Everyone knows, you know, what geo looks like. Everyone knows geo's face, right? You don't always know every player's face because we got helmets on and it's obstructed. And, you know, yeah, like guys can be productive and this, that, and the other. But there are some guys who transcend those limitations, right? There's some guys who are in front of the camera enough because they've put themselves in a the position to be in front of the camera enough. Number one, through their production. So the game camera's on them. But the number two, the media camera's on them because the media wants to interview them. They're a nice interview. They're, they're, they're a fun interview. And, they're, and they get good information out of guys like that because they're insightful and they're intelligent and they give good answers. Michael Carter is that guy. Um, it, all of that, right, really boils down to if you take all those things and you package it together, all those adjectives that I just gave him, right, he's just a leader. And he's the kind of guy like a geo who is insanely productive, right? But he's also insanely positive. He left a positive mark on this program. Don McCauley is another one, right? And anyone who lives in Chapel Hill sees Don all over the place. He's got a name. He's got a street named after him, for God's sake, right there on campus. Um, you know, he is 
we we respect our really good running backs, right? We the we value our very good running backs in Chapel Hill. Michael Carter is just going to be another you know another one of those guys on that Mount Rushmore of you that UNC Rushmore of running backs. Uh, and I think he put himself there obviously because of his production, but he's he's really etched himself into that stone because of who he is as a person and and who he's been in terms of fan engagement and as a teammate. And you hear that week in and week out from the people covering the games. And I think that's for good reason. Yeah. Having worked for the program and then moving into a position where I cover the team uh, professionally since Michael Carter has been a freshman, uh, I tweeted it, but I don't think you're going to see a more genuine person come through Chapel Hill. And, you know, a lot of times you use uh, hyperbole when you're talking about players like that, but Having interacted with Michael Carter, he's a guy where you truly believe how genuine he is and just how great of a person he is. And just all the football stuff is extra. This is a kid who went through his first two years on one of the worst programs in mm-hmm. Carolina football history with five wins in two seasons. And then you don't, you don't like Mac Brown obviously deserves a lot of credit for turning around the culture of Carolina, but it, it was going to take people inside that locker room to get guys to buy in, to get, you know, Mac Brown could be preaching all day, but unless he has those guys inside the program, all his words can be falling on deaf ears without a guy like Michael Carter in the locker room. So Michael Carter, I'm really looking forward to watching him on Sundays, but uh, Mike sticking with the running game here, we did see a glimpse of the future with DJ Jones and Elijah Green, who, were among some of the rare positives from an offense that was otherwise pretty dull in the second half. What did you think about that duo at running back? I think they averaged like 6.7 yards per carry. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to have a problem here in the next year, right? We're going to be constantly comparing the next two running backs because we're going to have a running back by committee. That's just how, that's how offenses work now. There's really no more featured back type of situation. Carolina was – um, you know, we took that to a different level the last couple of years with Javante and Michael Carter. But every offense, every successful offense at least, you know, has a duo or a committee of running backs. I mean, even Clemson, right? Uh, Travis Etienne is their primary back, right? But he's he's one of a couple backs, you know, that they use throughout the game. You know, there's certain guys that give him spells. He's not in, he's not in there every single down. Um, you know, we're gonna I think we're gonna we're gonna see a committee type approach moving forward trying to replace the guys we had. And I think the trap that we need to not fall into is to be constantly comparing the new to the old. Um, you know, what we had these last few years with, with Javante and with Michael Carter is special. It just, it, it just, it is, and it was, and, um, and it will be for, you know, two more weeks um, or at least, or two more games, I should say. But we need to not fall in the trap of constantly comparing the new crew to the old crew. I think what I saw out of these two guys was the same thing, you know, that, that I've seen from Javante and I've seen from Michael Carter. I saw patience in backs that are otherwise relatively inexperienced, um, which was, which was a positive uh, mainly because it shows that they were paying attention to who was in front of them, right? They're mimicking the, they're mimicking the traits um, and the play style of the guys that were in front of them that gave those guys success. Um, but you can, you can tell they're going to be, you know, they're going to be their own athletes. Um, but I thought they've, they've clearly, they've watched film. They've taken the senior leadership or the old, you know, the elder leadership, um, you know, from Michael and from Javante, and they've incorporated that into their own games. And I think what's, I think what we're going to see is you know, we'll, 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 
our offense is designed to have success in the running game. I think it's not a plug and play type situation, but I think we've got some talent in the running back room moving forward. Again, it's hard to gauge against a team like Western Carolina exactly what you might have. You know, Javante had his own headaches. If you think back last year, he had a huge he had a huge fumble against Wake Forest. He had a you know, he wasn't the Javante last year that he's been this season still highly effective back but you know there were some growing pains there we're going to see that moving forward with the new with the new running back crew that we have but I think we certainly have some talent in that room um I don't know that we're going to have the same type of production immediately but I think over time um you know we'll we'll get close and and I don't necessarily know that running back will be our problem moving forward after we lose some of these offensive pieces yeah I can't imagine a scenario in which Javante Williams comes back next year so that is no way no, yeah. and he would be foolish too. I mean, at this point, uh, I remember talking to Hakeem Nix. This was my first exposure to like the draft. And EJ, I'll tell you the same thing. But Butch, um, you know, Butch Davis had had a uh, his mentality was if you're if you're if you're going to be projected in the first round, you got to go. Even if you're an underclassman, if you're a first rounder, you got to go. Depending on your position, right? And this, I remember talking to Hakeem at practice one day, and I was asking him, you know, this was two thousand. Uh, 2008, I was asking him, you know, so what are you going to do? You're going to come back, you know, for a senior year. Um, obviously, I redshirted. I had two more years. But we were in the same incoming class, right? Hakeem didn't redshirt. So it would have been his true senior year in 2009. I said, hey, you know, are you going to come back? Because we were really excited about what we had coming back, like for EJ's senior year. And um, and he was like, ah, you know, man, I'm, I'm projected to go pretty high. I was like, well, how high are you projecting? He's like, right now they're saying first round. And I was like, oh, you got to go. And I didn't know anything about the draft back then. I wasn't thinking about football. I was just like, oh, you got to go. Like, this is a no-brainer. It's like even people who know nothing about, you know, the NFL draft and kind of what draft prospects are and draft grades understand that if you're a, you got a first-round grade, you got to go. Other positions like center, if you're drafted anywhere in the, you know, second to fourth round, if you're an underclassman, you got to go. Like, there's, there's just certain rules for the draft. And I think Javante is going to have a pretty high – draft grade it would be I think it would be foolish for him to stay um although if he you know if he did barring injury I don't foresee a situation where his stock would drop uh, but I think right now he's he he might he might be at the at the highest his his value is going to be but as we've seen you know a, a guy like Travis Etienne I'll use him as an example again he could have left him at a first round running back last year he decided to stay to come back try to win a national championship I don't know that his draft stock has dropped tremendously um, I think the business decision that Javante is going to have to make is, you know, who's in his running back class next year. And does he think that even with a good year by his standards, which would be a great year by most standards, but a good year by Javante's standards, would, he, would his draft stock remain the same based on the people he'll be coming out, um, he'll be at the combine with and coming out in the draft with? Um, you know, I think that remains to be seen. I'm not, I haven't done any analysis on that. I couldn't tell you, but I would think that right now he's probably at a premium. It would, most likely be in his interest to to get out of here after this year and I don't think anybody would or should hold it against him yeah everything I've seen is that he's a a top five back right now for this draft class so um like I was saying I I I just can't see a situation where he comes back especially just the the wear and tear that comes with being a running back and how short their NFL careers already are Um, and then you you factor in for the past two years he has done the running back by committee uh, with Michael Carter to save some of that, uh, the, the tread on him to where he is an exciting prospect from an NFL perspective. Um, but I, I think you did see enough from DJ Jones and Elijah Green to be encouraged. And then I think you just have to think about what Coach Gillespie has done 
during his time at Carolina where Michael Carter and Javante Williams were good running backs last year, but under his development, they took a whole nother leap next year. So I think it's a situation of the more these running backs are in the system and then just the more success guys like Javante Williams and Michael Carter have on the field, it's just going to make it easier to recruit that running back position where you, you hear the air raid and Phil Longo system and you see Sam Howell and you kind of think, oh, they're, they're a, a one-dimensional type team that's just going to throw the ball 40-plus times. And then you look at a guy like Michael Carter and Javante Williams who – uh, could have back-to-back 2,000-plus -back, uh, rushing yard seasons. Uh, it's it's a pretty impressive mark for the running back position. But, EJ, switching to you and kind of sticking with the trend of young guys, 37 guys played on defense, which is exactly why you play a team like Western Carolina. Eugene Asante and Kamon Rucker, according to Pro Football Focus, graded out really well. Did any of the young guys really stand out to you? And if so, why did they stand out? I think I'll start off with, with, with Gamon Rucker. I mean, this guy has impressed me early on. I remember um, talking a couple of games back about how well he uses his hand and kind of set himself up for a big TFL later on in the drive. But this guy really reminds me a lot of a young a young Bruce Carter. I mean, early on in his career, he's in there. He, he He's good for pressure. He's good for the big hits. He's good for the athletic plays. But I think he's he's Ruth, Bruce Carter's athleticism and, and kind of play style with, with Quan Sturdivant's brain. Because, I mean, obviously, for a guy that you come in and play sparingly, to be able to to, to be cognizant of the tempo of the game, the level of physicality of the game, and how he, how he and his talents kind of fit in, that's really encouraging. And with he and Dez, Evans, I think our defense is set up to have booking booking defensive ends or, or edge players, depending on who's standing up and whose hand is in dirt in our defense. It's something that we probably haven't had since 2011 with Kareem Martin and, and Quentin Copel. So I'm, that that's what excites me more. I, I, as Michael tells you, anybody who who talks to me or listen to me say anything will tell you that any offensively or defensively, it begins in the trenches, especially on the when the defense. Your defense goes as your defensive line goes. If you have a great defensive line, they can overcome some 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 discrepancies that you may have a linebacker or in the secondary with pass rush and just making penetrating making and, and making running plays on the, against the run. But with these two guys, I, I, I really see complete players in them. Of course, they're not where they're going to be by their senior year or junior year, depending on when they decide to leave Carolina and, and head on for greater things. But I do think that both of these guys will have a great career. Um, Kamon Rucker is probably going to be one of my favorite players. I mean, I just love the way this guy, this guy plays. I mean, you think about the first half, first drive of the second half, that was that was the Rucker drive. I mean, the first play, he comes out, he has a tackle for loss. The next play, he comes out, he has a hustle play that, that kind of helps him uh, onto a fourth, a fourth and out. So when you see guys that can make a play when something's coming towards them and they can also make that same type of big splash play when the play is completely away from them, that's a primetime player. That's a Chaz Surratt type player. That's a, a that's a that's some of the deep, great defensive players and linebackers that we've had in our defense over these last few years. And I think Dez Evans, if he really realizes what he has with this combination of size and strength and athleticism, if it really starts to click for him, which I think it will, because I mean, just seeing how he's evolved during the season, once it really clicks for that guy, I think we're going to see a great stretch of defensive linemen and defensive players like we saw from about 2008 on to through about 2014 with, with like the guys I mentioned, Quan Sturdivant, Bruce Carter, Quentin Coples, um, 
Rob Quinn, Marvin Austin, Nas Jones. Like, I, and I see that in this defensive line. I mean, you even have guys like Miles Murphy, who, who I mentioned a couple of weeks ago and raving about playing with the club on his hand. I mean, that guy, I almost forget that he's a young guy because he's in the game and he's in the mix so much. I forget that he's a, a freshman or a quote-unquote inexperienced player coming to the game because that's not what I see when I watch the game or, or review film or anything on this team. So I'm, I'm very excited. Um about what's to come. I know that uh, Patrice Renee got dinged up Saturday and that, that hurt some of our older leadership, but I think we're to a point in the season where you're not a freshman anymore. After about game eight, you're now clicked over in the sophomore. It's your time to start putting your stamp on the season, showing that you've gotten better, showing that you've progressed, and showing what type of leader you're going to be bring, coming into spring ball, going into the summer, and going into the next season. Because, And that's what I really like. I'm glad that this game happened when it did because, you, one, you get a chance to rest some of those defensive players who probably banged up. I know my man Vohavik is. I mean – He's he pretty much lives in the, the opposing team's backfield. I mean, it's and, and just a second. I know we're talking about young guys, but I want to take a side note. Watching as a defensive lineman, watching Ray play is kind of like what I would imagine watching Mozart play if you're if you're a musician. <laughs> like, I mean, you, you're talking about knockback on every play. The guy runs to the ball. He's athletic. I've never seen a nose tackle be that athletic and be that stout against the run. I mean, that, that that's rare to have a guy who's not just – because usually you see a nose guard, he's a fat Casey Hampton type guy, no offense, but he's usually there to just jumble everything up in the middle. But Ray has pass rush. Ray's playing sideline to sideline. I saw – I highlighted one play where he completely controlled the offensive lineman down the line of scrimmage and made a play almost to the side on the other side of the field. So with this, with him coming back next year and those young guys progressing like they are, I think our defense will get much better. But like you just finished talking about, Mitch, what is this offense going to look like next year? Did we miss our window to really be great? But um, hopefully – with the, I think with this level of talent that we have on defense, not just with the guys I mentioned, but guys like Grimes, uh, Cam Kelly, and some of the other younger guys who have to play sparingly, I think we have the type of defense that can actually make it a little bit easier on our offense. But only time will tell on that. But I am really excited about what I saw on Saturday from those young guys. I'll tell you what, Mac Brown's no stranger to having good defensive players, right? I mean, look his first round in UNC, right? Guys like Greg Ellis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that Julius Peppers was not a Mac guy, but he was, you know, recruited off the heels of that Mac Brown era. Um, you know, and then at Texas, you got Frank Oakham, Roy mm-hmm. Miller, uh, Iraq Poe, uh, Derek Johnson back there at <laughs> linebacker, Earl Thomas, right? I mean, you had a, just a slew of defensive players come out of Texas during those Mac Brown years, you know, and Mac was a running back at Florida State in college. He's an offensive guy, but he knows how to put together defensive teams. So, you know, I, I think if, yeah, I'll, I'll tell the people listening, if E.J. Wilson is encouraged by the stuff he's seeing out of young players, E.J. is highly <laughs> critical, particularly of defensive linemen. He might be more critical of D-linemen than I am an O-lineman, and I think all O-linemen <laughs> suck, myself included. So, um, listen, if you're, if you're a fan listening to this, this is the, this is the focus. We, we saw some positive stuff. We should play Western Carolina every freaking week, I guess. What do you yeah, think? we should. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the uh... – the interesting note. You think, that, hey, you think you think you think the playoff committee would you think the playoff committee would let us in the playoffs if we played Western every week? No. Well, we'll sprinkle in Duke. We'll sprinkle in Duke a couple of times. We'd be the Coastal Carolina sitting at fifteen on the outside looking in um, after beating the uh, number thirteen team. Yeah. <laughs> but the the interesting note with came uh, on Rucker is he played the twelfth most snaps against Western Carolina with uh, twenty five, but he led the team in tackles with seven. Uh, he had two tackles for a loss, so 
that's definitely an encouraging sign. And on the same line of thinking, uh, this is a defense that they don't have to replace much. They, they're replacing Chazerat, uh, Taman Fox, and then I guess you could throw in a guy like Patrice Rene because Carolina should have enough talent on, um, at cornerback to kind of offset losing a guy like Patrice Rene. But those three are the only big-time contributors. How much will that young continuity help them into next year, and how would you expect them <laughs> – to improve with another offseason under their belt, EJ? Oh, it helps them immensely. I mean, I can't think of any situation in any program where this wouldn't be a big benefit. And especially not – I mean, even when you have guys who are mid-level talent, the guys who are your three stars, two- and three-star guys, but you think about a Mac Brown coach team uh, Jay Bateman coached the defense with four and five star guys getting getting times in game where there's not a lot of pressure on them, where they know the game is in hand and they can go out and play their style of football and, and learn how to play that same style of football that they played in high school that got them a Division One offer and translate that to see how that fits in the system. I think that's something that's downplayed a lot uh, with people is how do people fit – like, they always see this, oh, this is a talented guy. He ran a 4-3 in high school. He ran a 4-3 in college. He's automatically going to be amazing. But, no, I personally played a 4-3 in college and went to Seattle where they played a two-gap uh, a two gap style of 4-3, and I did not fit in that system. So, guys are really got, get, getting a chance to see how they fit in Coach Bateman's system this year and how their talents can be utilized and also some things that they may have thought that they've done well, but this just aren't good enough for this defense and things that they need to improve on during the next offseason. So, it, it, it really is good because a lot of time you have a freshman guy who didn't get a snap, who, who, who redshirted or didn't get a snap all year. He has no idea, one, what he needs to work on other than watching film and seeing what other guys are doing wrong if, if he doesn't play he doesn't know how he fits into that defense he doesn't know if if am I able to play a little bit wild and free or do I need to play a little bit more conservative than I normally do and I also think that next year this defense is going to go as number 44 goes uh Jeremiah Gimmel has been somebody who's who's impressed me since last season he's still playing well this year I think his his weakness is probably in coverage but that's something that can be improved. And I think that he has to step in and pick up on some of that leadership, uh, that leadership vacuum that's going to be created with the probable departure of Chaz Surratt and the definite departure of guys like Patrice Renee, who've been playing in this defense and playing in in Keenan Stadium for so long that the fans know him. I mean, guys know him before they come in. I even heard a comment from one of the guys that said Patrice Renee was the godfather of Rude. And I don't know how that went on with Dre Bly being in the same meeting room. Um, we, we, we were yelling out these rude boy D-line showtime O-line Roadhog well before some of these guys. Probably, what is it, 2020? Probably before these guys were even starting school. My I think it's because Patrice Rene has been there for like yeah, he's 16 our, years. <laughs> he's like the he – is the, he is the Chacos of rude, that's for sure. He did. He was recruited he's, with Choo Choo. Yeah, he's the, he's the Brian <laughs> Chacos of rude, that's for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, but – and like, I mean – that's just a legacy. There's going to be a leadership vacuum. So I think 44 has to step up. I think Tamari Fox has to step up. Simply, I mean, when you start off the season with your defensive coordinator saying that you're going to be the key and probably one of the most versatile guys in this defense, that just, that, that 
responsibility goes well beyond just playing well on the field. You have to be a leader. You have to be one of those guys that we talked about that, that changes the culture, that make guys want to tackle and make guys want to play physical and stick to their assignment. And, and Kimon Rucker, I think he's the, I think he's that guy. I really think that after one more year in that defense where he gives him significant reps and he really gains that trust of his teammates, I think he's going to be a big time player, man. I, I really do. And I mean, it just impresses me with the little things. If you're a freshman and you're doing the little things, then I think that the only thing you're going to do is get more knowledge about the game, the speed of the game, the knowledge of the defense, and you're going to be able to the, – the, the technique and the small things is going to be so second nature. You're going to be, some of, be able to do some of those things where your athleticism takes over, your knowledge of a play of, or your film is able to take over. So I think that this really – this is – having a young, young guy is more impactful than anything that will ever show up in the stat sheet and something that you probably won't even notice or take mind of until some of these guys are leaving and, and probably getting drafted into the NFL. So I'm, I'm super excited about what I saw on Saturday and what we have to look forward to in the coming Yeah, game. but does he, is, he, is he the leader of Gojo fights in the, in the locker room? That's what I want to know. Oh, without a doubt, you have to be. You have to be a leader <laughs> on all fronts. <laughs> speaking, speaking on, on, off, on and off the field, in and out of <laughs> Speaking of the who uh, leads in the shower. The, <laughs> speaking of those OGs and the guys that have played forever, nobody's ever going to top Devin Ramsey. Devin Ramsey was there for no less hmm. than ten plus years. He, I think he came Wait, in about. He's not there anymore. I think he came not there in anymore. About two thousand seven, and his eligibility just ran out last year. Devin hosted me. Devin hosted me on my official visit, and he was mentioning about how much fun he had back in the day. And it will Kelvin Bryant, so. Yeah, Dev used to show me those throwback jerseys they wore against Wake Forest. He used to show me his game jersey from when they had those. No grass stains, though. No, it didn't have any grass stains. Dev was the prettiest fullback of all time. He wasn't Bobby Rum. I love the Bobby Rum if he's listening. Mike. Bobby Rum would hit the – oh, I'm sorry. He would hit the hell out of you. Mike, going back to a point you had mentioned. We're going to edit that out. Yeah, I edited all the curses out every time anyway. Okay. But, Mike, uh, going back to a point you had mentioned earlier, um, Ed Montalus, before this game, was ruled out for the season. He's been a rotational piece for Carolina's young offensive line. and He's, he's been the, the rotational piece. Yeah, yeah. He's played the six most snaps on that offensive line, and he's kind of rotated in at left guard at times. In your opinion, how significant of a loss is this for an offensive line that has relied – so largely on a six-man rotation this season? This was the fear that I had early on, right? We, we talked about what are my concerns about the offensive line this season after game one, and it was, do we have more than a six-man rotation? And I didn't necessarily know that we were going to. It turns out that we didn't. And for, what, you know, for whatever reason, either we've got, you know, some young guys that haven't developed yet. We've got some older guys that didn't develop the way we thought they would. You know, we had six guys that um, – that Stacy over there thought, you know, that he was comfortable with rolling out on the field. And that's, that's the six that we rolled with all year long. And now we've lost one of them. So somebody's got to step up and be ready to play because, you know, what we've seen now is, you know, we, we're, we're comfortable in an offensive line rotation. I never honestly thought I'd see it, but we're, our offensive line seems to be more comfortable rotating than not rotating. Um, we're going to have to have somebody come in there and be ready to fill that, that six gap, right? That, that six man spot on the offensive line, because someone's going to get hurt, right? Some, so somebody has got to be developed enough back there or be ready 
right, to hop in when needed, um, to be, you know, studying the game plans enough, studying the offense enough, right, and studying the guys in front of him enough to be ready to rotate into that position when he's called because it's going to happen. Um, you know, we've got, again, Miami coming up, and that's uh, – they are a talented, hard-hitting, good team. They're fundamentally sound, particularly on defense. Um, you know, it's going to be a very physical football game. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that we're going to have somebody get dinged. I don't know it's going to get hurt, right? But we're going to have somebody get dinged for a series. And we're going to need to see what that rotation is going to be. Um, and then obviously with the bowl game, I mean, you hope everybody's healthy, but, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, during bowl prep, somebody might get hurt and we need to rotate someone in there. Or somebody might, you know, go out and get a DUI or something dumb. I mean, these things happen, right, before bowl games. So, um, you know, we, we've got to be ready to have enough guys to roll in there and not miss a beat. You know, my biggest concern is we've already seen with our starters, the six best guys we, you know, we've, we've thought we've had, all right, the five starters. And, and I, you know, I consider monoliths a, a starter just because of how much we rotate. Um, you know, so we've got a, a six-man offensive line. We're still seeing Sam, his jersey's dirty every game. I mean, Sam's still getting hit. He's still getting a bunch of pressure. He's still got guys in his face all the time, even against Western. Um, our tackles are getting beat on a lot of inside moves, and Sam was getting lit up a couple of times more than he should have. And my concern is when you, you know, if if we do who and why wasn't he in the road all season long? Right. Hopefully, whatever deficiency that person had, um, that it's quickly gone, and he's ready to rotate in and play because. My boys in there who are relatively inexperienced against a, a very good, talented defensive line, defensive front. We'll see what happens, but I do have my concerns. Um, you know, Monolis was was a good player. Obviously, he was our sixth best offensive lineman. The coaches felt, and uh, you know, hopefully, we got a guy that can come in and fill his shoes. Yeah, that'll be worth keeping an eye on moving forward. But EJ, last question I have for you. Don't look now. Carolina has missed single-digit tackles for the third consecutive game. The Tar Heels do play Miami next in what should be a great test for this defense going up a quarterback like Garrett King, who's averaging 50-plus rushing yards per game. Uh, this defense is we, – we would all agree this defense is far from perfect, but how much more leeway does a defense have for mistakes when you can consistently get a ball carrier down on the first attempt? Ooh, that's there's, a there's a difference with our defense. <laughs> when you talk about ball carrier, there's a running back or a wide receiver, right? We're okay there. Then there's quarterbacks who are the ball carrier, and that's a different animal. And that's what we're going to have okay. against Miami. Yeah, and that's why I kind of cover my eyes when you start bringing up this question. Um, the apostrophe Eric King has run the ball <laughs> 111 times this year, and I'm pretty sure that number is going to be more like 140 by the, t- the end of this game. We have oh, not God. proven that we've not proven that we can stop a rushing quarterback. Yeah. And I think that and, – and Mike does make a good point. You practice all the time tackling wide receivers, running backs – tight ends, all those people. But when it comes to the quarterback, because of the way the rules are set up, which I think I'm one of those rare defensive people that think some of these rules are set up for the betterment of players. 
that you don't know how to approach tackling a quarterback because depending on what what officiating crew you have that day, if a quarterback is giving himself up and you give him a little love tap, yeah, that's fine. That's all within the parameters of the game. But there's also some referees that even if you touch the guy after he slid, then the guys then they'll try to call a personal foul. I don't think any of that is the problem with what we have going on. I can't identify – I can't really can't identify the problem that we have with rushing quarterbacks. It doesn't matter what caliber they are. Is If they're a quarterback and they're running the ball, it's like we get kind of give them a five-yard head start, which, which, which sucks. We have a quarterback coming in here now who's run the ball against some very high-quality defenses and has been doing it at a high level again this year in the ACC. So I'm extremely worried. I mean, I, I think that – we struggle with rushing quarterbacks so bad that he could single-handedly win that game for them if, if, if it's a tight game. If, if we're if, – if they get off to a good game, a good start running the ball, we're going to commit to blitzing and pressuring and stacking the box to stop the run. Here you go, De'Aaron King around the corner, 40, 50-yard game for a touchdown or just chipping away at it. If he's passing the ball, if he gets off to a very efficient passing game and, and our coverage is not where it's supposed to be and we're really supporting that with five or six DBs in the game, well, what are they going to do? They're going to run quarterback draws. He's going to escape from the pocket because there's going to be no one within 10 yards of him. So those are the things that I worry about. And I think specifically the last situation that I uh, – the first situation that I said because we struggled running the ball – stopping the run this year. I mean, even against Western Carolina, we gave up 100 and some odd yards in a game that I think that we defensively – dominated and we were obviously the more talented team so having a guy here that who I think is one of the best talents playing quarterback this year who's really he's a kind of a how they describe Kyler Murray he's more of a punt returner kind of a running back slash athlete playing quarterback but the thing is unlike most of those quarterbacks you see in college football this guy can throw the football he can hurt you either way I mean Miami is a very efficient offense so this is like as soon as this game ended, I was like, "Well, on to Miami, on to," and it's kind of tough coming from playing a a lower caliber lower caliber opponent like Western Carolina to playing a team that's one of the best in the country and the best in our conference. And no matter if they're good or bad, they always probably going to have the best athletes on the field when you line up against them. I mean, well, and De'Aaron King was really. I mean, you got to remember he's played a lot of football. Exactly, he's, play, he's played in a lot of big games. He was really successful. He was really good for a really good Houston team there for a couple of years mm-hmm. too. So, this isn't his first rodeo. I mean, I think that's a lot to exactly. do with you know the success you're seeing at Miami is they haven't had that quarterback. That's the one thing. That's the one piece they've been missing for probably ten years, right? They just haven't had that quarterback, mm-hmm. and now they've got one, and they're a top ten football, and they're legitimately a top ten football team they're not yeah. top 10 like like we were top 10 <laughs> they're top 10 they should be in the top 10 um you know yeah. i think i think you're you're hitting the nail on the head with you know we've got we've got our work cut out for us against dr king i think a lot of it comes down to open field tackling right the problem we have is mm-hmm. whether it's quarterback draw whether it's scrambling we have a problem in one-on-one tackle situations um you know when there's not traffic and there's not there's not garbage around you know where it you know can can trip a guy up one-on-one where we just got to make that play we don't have a lot of guys that can just nut up and make Mm -hmm. that play um you know I think and we're gonna and it's gonna be tested we're gonna see if there's actually been improvement we're gonna see if some of the you know single digit missed tackles and stuff against Western Carolina was just a fluke it was just a talent discrepancy um or if there was actually a light bulb that went off we're gonna we're it's gonna it's we're gonna be tested against Miami we're gonna see it's a game we can win for sure um, but it's going to come down to whether or not we can stop the quarterback when he's got the ball in his hands. God knows that's a toss-up, man. And, and the thing, yeah. I, I think one thing that people don't realize about Miami is that kids in Miami, when they're coming out and you get all these two- and three-star ratings, they're rated compared to the kids who are in their state. 
So no no offense to North Carolina and Virginia, but a two star in the state of Florida, especially South Florida. There's a four-star everywhere else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you're going out here against guys that Miami just happened to pick up locally, and the third-string guy as a wide receiver could legitimately be six-foot-two and running a four-three. He may have hands of stone, but these are the type of guys that we're playing against Saturday. Hands like feet. Exactly. And the open field tackling is really going to be, I think, put on display. I think that Miami, if their coaches are as smart as I think they are, they're going to put our defense in situations where they have to make some of those one-on-one tackles and where Miami can really use their athleticism as a benefit. Talking about the wide receiver screens, the quick slants, different things like that where – it's you, it's, it's mono and mono. It's you, your athleticism and technique against this other guy's athleticism and technique. And honestly, uh, from what I've seen this year, I don't know how many of those battles we're going to win, but we just have to find a way. We're going to need some plays like from guys like Jeremiah, like Chaz, like some of the young guys, Dez, and Kimon Rucker, um, Bo Havoc in the middle, um, the Fox brothers. We're going to need those guys. I mean, Cam Kelly, Grimes, all those guys back there in the secondary. We're going to need these guys to step up and, and actually play. And I think um, Grimes is really going to be on the spotlight with him. I mean, every, I think everyone's given him the great city he deserves, being that he's supposed to be in high school this year but at the end of the day you're the number one corner and I think that he's played close to enough football where I think that they're going to try to test him so we'll, we'll really see what the future of our defense is going to look like compared to some of these high caliber ACC schools that we're going to be competing with if we are who we say we are yeah a lot of people were looking to see how De'Ara King would translate to power five football after uh two years ago I think it was where he dominated at Houston and he's a lot closer to being that Heisman type candidate than being just just another guy at Miami and I think his stats kind of show show for that and when you look at Miami they have the 73rd best rushing offense in the country and they're 102nd in sacks allowed so I think for how bad those stats are I think that shows how good King is and how how afraid Carolina should be of a guy like King especially with their struggles against running quarterbacks. But Carolina closes out the regular season this Saturday at Miami, 3.30 kickoff on ABC, a potential Orange Bowl bid on the line, depending on how the ACC championship game plays out. And it would probably be Carolina's biggest win since Mac Brown returned. But, guys, looking forward to breaking it down. Definitely looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by T-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.